listening to First Church Charlotte. All right, everybody head back to your seats. Intermission is over. I hope you enjoyed your popcorn and nachos. We're going to have to install a light dimming system so at 30 seconds we can dim the lights twice. (laughs) Amen. All right. Mark chapter number 10. If you'd like to direct your attention to our overhead or open your Bibles. Mark chapter number 10. We're reading at verse number 17. Why don't we all stand together? Before we read, let's all arrange to arrive at the same place in the scripture. In the beginning of Mark chapter number 10, God, Jesus, I should say, blesses the little children. Remember that? If you weren't here last week, uh, Jesus blessed the little children at the beginning of Mark chapter number 10. And so something happens right after that. Let's start at verse number 7. Now, as Jesus was going down the road, one came running. Somebody say, very excited. Knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, okay, pause. This next paragraph is very, very theologically important. Just because I don't have time to do it justice tonight, this next little passage is very, very theologically important and is, in a nutshell, a foundational difference between an Old Testament way of serving God and a New Testament way of serving God, okay? Just think about that as we continue. Why do you call me good, Jesus says? No one is good but one, that is God. That's very, very important. You're not good if you have the right daddy. You're not good if you have the right covenant. You're not good if you keep the right covenant. That's the teaching of the law. You are fallen and need mercy. There's only one who is good, okay? That's the fundamental difference. Uh, So I'm not going to do that justice tonight, but trust me, because I'm a gospel preacher, we will revisit that. You know the commandments Jesus said, don't commit adultery. So if you're running around committing adultery, stop it. We clear on that? Just stop it. Just stop that ignorance. It's going to burn your house down. You're not special. All the rules apply. Okay, we agreed on that? I had a man quit the church one time because he said I didn't preach against sex enough. All you people in immorality, stop it already. I thought that was obvious, but with some people, you never know. Okay, stop murdering people. Okay, if anybody has a body in your backyard, stop it already. (laughs) Moving along. Do not steal. Now, this might be getting closer to home here. (laughs) Do not bear false witness. Don't act like you know about something if you don't know about something. Yes, Lord. (laughs) Don't defraud. Don't do business with lies. But I'm a salesman. Stop it already. Don't do business with lies. Honor your father and your mother. I got an amen from over here. And the young man, or the young, law, the, the young rich ruler uh, says, Teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. Now, okay, okay, what is the first thing Jesus said? There's none good but God, right? Here's the, here's the commandments. What did the guy take away? He took away what was comfortable to him, what he knew, what fit his worldview. I have kept all of these things, okay? But there's only one who is good. 
Uh, Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come take up your cross and follow me. But he, the young rich ruler, was very sad at this word, went away very sorrowful, for he had great possessions. All right, someone say, talking about money. God bless you, you may be seated. Now that I have you comfortably ensconced upon your padded seat, I'm going to continue reading, and I would like you, before you completely relax and start filing your fingernails, I'd like you to follow with me uh, through the second half of this passage, okay? Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, and the disciples were astonished. Somebody say astonished. That's important. They were astonished at this statement. It wasn't something they had heard. It wasn't in the common ministerial theme of Jesus' teaching. They were astonished, but Jesus wasn't content simply to leave them astonished. He continues speaking and says, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Let's have some clarity. Those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished. This wasn't something they had heard. This was new. This was another perspective. Uh, And they said among themselves, they're no longer talking to Jesus. Now they're muttering. Uh, I know you guys have been in a service where the preacher was a little controversial. It's not happened very often here. Uh, But some churches, the preachers are very controversial. And uh, they say something controversial. And nobody says much during church. But later on at the restaurant. (laughs) So here you have the disciples. And later on at the restaurant, they say, how, how is anyone going to be saved? They don't say this to Jesus. They say it one to another. Well, Jesus overhears them in the same manner that your pastor overhears you. <laughs> and he says, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Okay, so let's talk about money. Um, there is, there is a truth that all serious students of the Bible has to, they have to build upon this truth um, because it is the only path to right understanding. Uh, when we study the word of the Lord, we don't study it to win arguments. We don't study it to prepare for debates. We do not make the Bible serve us. What do I mean by that? You make the Bible serve you when you decide what it means and go looking for it to confirm what you've decided. You don't serve, you don't make the Bible serve you, you serve the Bible. Or let me say it another way, you don't have the Bible humble itself to you, you humble yourself to the Bible. And so when we read the word of the Lord, we're not preparing for debates, we're not preparing to win arguments, we're not looking for defenses for what we have already decided is true, we literally are humbling ourselves and coming as children saying, teach me, show me, and we seek to study with the discipline of of a scholar, but also the sensitivity of someone filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. And those are different, those are different, uh, 
they're opposites. They are, they are in many ways uh, two columns over which an arch of understanding is built. And the arch is stronger than either single column. Because they reinforce each other. What do I mean by that? So, uh, in this issue of having the discipline of a scholar, we do not want to pretend the Bible is absolute about something the Bible is not absolute about. We don't want to pretend the Bible is perfectly clear about something the Bible is not perfectly clear about. This is the Pharisees' problems. They said it's unclear for Moses to say, keep the Sabbath. So they put themselves in the seat of Moses, and they said, Moses didn't know how to say it, so we're going to save Moses by telling you what Moses meant. Okay, They were fine quoting Moses, but the moment they put themselves in the seat of Moses, they now are telling you what Moses meant. And Jesus says he critiques them as placing them, arrogating to themselves the position of Moses. If Moses wanted to say, don't walk more than 3,000 steps on the Sabbath, he would have said that. He didn't. What he wanted to say was keep the Sabbath. But Moses didn't understand that this person is going to tend to do too much work. And this person is going to tend to not do enough work. And so Moses needs us to save him. I want to, I want to say this. We are not placing ourselves in the seat of Moses. The Bible said it. That's what we stand on. We do not add to, nor do we take away. Is that fair? Okay, so money. Why am I talking about this? Because you can make the Bible say anything about money. I didn't get a single amen. I got a giggle. Thank you for the giggle. I felt some unity. That's right, scholars, helping me out. She's just excited to be talking about money. She's like, yes, Lord. (laughs) So um, uh, you can make the Bible say anything about money. All you have to do is find the right scripture and quote it louder than the rest of them. If you want to believe that it's prosperity, you find the, the gospels or the passages where blessings are promised. I have nothing but good in my heart toward you. I'm going to prosper you and bless you. Look Upon the horizon, everything you can see, I can give it to you. Name it and claim it. Believe it and receive it. 44 million. <laughs> so, so what am I saying? Um, we can make the Bible say, and many people do, whatever you want it to say about religion. About, about money, I should say. Um, and so, um, Lee, we want to get money right because the Bible doesn't have just one position on money. The Bible teaches us with complexity and layers. The truth is money is the ability to do things in this economy. Money is the ability to go do something. We like to think of it as power, but the truth is it's just one kind of power. And you can err if you allow yourself to offer cynicism as a substitute for intelligence. That's the problem with social media. People act cynical so they can act they can seem smart, but the truth is they don't know what they're talking about. They're just being cynical. Money is one kind of power, but there's other kinds of power. There is also the, the monopoly on violence that the government has. So you can have as much money as you want. The government has the best guns, and they're coming for some of it. That's a monopoly of violence. Or if you want to be um, in the philosophy of government, it's uh, under the philosophy, philosopher Hobbes came up with the idea of the Leviathan. The Leviathan is the government. The Leviathan has a monopoly on, on violence. And you're totally bored, so I'm going to just drop that right there. 
Uh, so the point is, money is a certain kind. It's the ability to do things. Um, and I want you to see that in many places in the Bible, God promises to bless his covenanted people financially. He sends Abraham to Egypt, and he comes back wealthy. When the children of Israel leave Egypt, their neighbors are impressed upon their hearts to bring their valuables out and give them to them. So that's one view of money, but that's not the only view of money. In other places, you see how in the, in the, in the history of the children of Israel, there was much injustice preached against by, preached against by the prophets that was the result of uh, people misusing money and pleasing themselves rather than having any desire to help the widows and the orphans and the like in their society. We get to the gospel and the gospels, and Jesus talks more about money than any any other subject. Yeah, you didn't know that, did you? He talks more about money than any other subject. And he uses it as a manner to, wait for this, this is going to shock you. Some of some of you guys who have sensitive, you might want to plug your ears. I'll tell you when you can unplug them. I'll just go like that, okay? Jesus uses money to teach effectiveness in the kingdom of God. He uses the kingdom of God as an investor who leaves people in charge of local portfolios. And he's going away, and he comes back, and bless God, you better have made him some money. Okay, so money is not a singular idea in the Bible. Now, you can find no shortage of religious groups who pretend like it is. It's either all good or it's all bad. But there's very few who make it all bad. I mean, even in the few groups who take vows of poverty, they are sheltered within an organization that loves them some money. Why? It takes money to do anything. That chair you're sitting in costs $53. <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying? I mean, um, insurance on the church, about 1000 bucks a month, a little under 1000 bucks a month, just for insurance. Um, you, you get the idea. Everything costs money. Now, what do we want to do with money and understanding it? We want to use it in the appropriate way that is good, and we want to beware of the lies it always whispers in our ears. And Jesus gives us this example in the scripture of this rich young ruler who is evidently a very enthusiastical and impulsive guy. Jesus has finished blessing the children and walking away, and this guy comes running up. I mean, rulers don't normally run. Maybe it was a last-minute thing. Maybe he was manic-depressive. Who knows? But all of a sudden, Jesus is leaving. He said, I've got to ask one more question, and he takes off running. And he comes running up to Jesus in a cloud of dust, and he's like, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, I want you to remember Jesus knows what he's going to ask before he asks. Jesus already knows. He, he already knows. And so he wants to preface the conversation, I believe, that follows with this first theological truth. Why are you calling me only good? Only God is good. All right, we're going to, I'm not going to get into that too deep. But I just want to say, if we think we are saved by our human efforts, we think we are good. And Christ died in vain. 
On the other hand, if we think we are uh, saved by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and we do good works as a manner of, number one, worship, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not if you want to be saved, keep my commandments. If you love me. So our life can be worship. Somebody say worship. When you live, it is a certain way and you walk right. You are making an offering that is ultimately a love offering unto the Lord. It can be worship. That's number one. Number two, somebody say witness. It can be witness. It can be worship and it can be witness. Let men see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. It can be worship. It can be worship, uh, witness. But it cannot be a personal plan of salvation. Why callest thou me good? There's only one who is good. Have you kept the commandments? The guy's like, yep, I am Mr. Commandment. I mean, people all over town are talking more and more about how I'm the greatest commandment keeper that has ever lived. The guy's political. You know, he's thinking like this. He's not talking this way. I have done it all from my, from my youth. I am the picture of uh, religious zealotry. And so here I am. And uh, I want eternal life. And uh, is that going to be good enough? And the Lord looks looks at him and loves him. Uh, this is, this is a, uh, a beautiful uh, picture, I think, of, of the, the motivation uh, in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when he's teaching the confused and he's teaching uh, the manipulative. We don't know why this guy's going through this thing. We know this. He has great possessions and he doesn't want to get rid of them any time soon. And so Jesus skips past the rules that can be manipulated and lands right on the heart, which can never be manipulated. You see, you can, you can, make, you can trick rules. You can mock rules. Principles, however, they mock you. <laughs> You don't mock principles. Principles mock you. And so here this man is, I've kept this. I'm the picture of excellence. And Jesus says, okay, one thing thou lackest. Go and sell what you have and give to the poor. I want to point out something here that I think helps us. If this man had followed the instruction of Jesus and he had done this, gone out, he would have perhaps been one of the disciples or at least one of the 70. He was invited close. And that's a, that's an, a, a kind of a uh, overwhelming thing to think about, that one turns down an invitation to so high a calling. But, but um, you know, Jesus didn't ask anybody else to sell all they had. Uh, and so if this guy had done it, and this guy went on to do a work of ministry, let's say you went to his church. You know what his plan for salvation would be? Go sell all you have and give to the poor. The best message on this I have ever heard taught in my life was taught by a good a friend of mine, was a, a mentor to me, still is, uh, Brother uh, Ron Mullings, pastors in Bakersfield, California. Well, he's retired now, but I'm good friends with his son. His son pastors there, and, and he travels around. In fact, we need to get him to come here. He is just a great, great uh, teacher. He, he, teach, he taught the best message on this right here. He talked about this man uh, going from this point on, and if he's, it, it, the idea of 
of the message was to help people be more tolerant one to another and open our arms one to another and understand that there may be things in another person's life that they have to do and you should never criticize them for that, but you should receive them and prefer them and in like manner receive from them their preference of you. And so he said, if you went to this man's church, this is Brother Moling's teaching, he said, if you went to this man's church years later, his plan of salvation, his soteriology, there's a $5 theological word that you can, the next time someone wants to argue, just break that one out. Say, well, what is your personal soteriology? (laughs) That worked great for me. (laughs) And so uh, what's your salvation plan? What what is your study of salvation? This man would say, oh, I was there. I heard it from the mouth of Jesus. You can't tell me otherwise. The way to eternal life is to sell all you have and give to the poor. And so all of a sudden we have a simple church full of simple, certain, hopefully not angry people who are looking down at everybody else who has not sold all they have and given it to the poor. Well, next door to them is this other church. It's called uh, a deliverance center. And the pastor there is uh, the man possessed of demons. And he gets up on Sunday, he preaches, I was possessed of demons. I was in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, cutting myself and, and Jesus came across the water and I went to him and he cast those demons out and I'm free. And I said, Lord, I want to, I want to follow you and get a master's degree in divinity and know what to do. And Jesus said, no, you stay and tell people this is what God can do. So this is deliverance center. Don't worry about the people across the street because all they care about is given to the poor. That's false doctrine. Simple, certain, divisive. Boy, I'm, I'm stretching some people. Lord, help me not to knock anybody out in the head tonight, Lord Jesus. I, um, and, so, and, and, and so the point is, all any of us really have to do to have better relations is to humble ourselves and receive one another as best we can and not prefer our offering. I'm not talking about fundamental salvation here, although in the illustration I'm having fun with that. I'm talking about a willingness to receive a great breadth within the kingdom of heaven. And I think that is a, that is a wonderful thing, not a bad thing in any regard. And so here's this man. He goes sell all he have, give to the poor. And he goes away sorrowful. He doesn't want to do it. So, Jesus deals with this subject. I'm not on my notes at all, so let me just see if I've missed anything important. doesn't seem like it. Um, Jesus deals with this subject with his disciples because they are astonished. This isn't something they've heard before. Jesus has talked more about money than any other subject, at least in the frequency of the gospel stories given to us. We weren't there, so let's be fair, and let's try to humble ourselves before the word of the Lord, but this seems to be the frequency of subjects. And he has not, Jesus has rich friends. What's this business about? I mean, in a few, in not very long, Jesus is going to be crucified and he's going to be given a place to be buried by Joseph of Arimathea, who is loaded. I mean, him and Don hang out all the time, you know, and so uh, that's how that works. And um, they're, 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 what do you mean there's rich people? Sorry for picking on you, brother. I'll pick on DeWan in the future, okay? Um, and so what do you mean this business about, um, yeah, they don't believe me. It's a bad thing. This business about it's rich, hard for a rich man to be saved. We were just hanging out with Joseph of Arimathea, Lord. What do you mean? Is he lost? 
I hope not because you're going to need, you're talking about you're going to get killed. Somebody has to pay for the funeral. And we're all broke blue collar workers. It ain't us. Normally, if you talk about not having money, it's the little girls who cry. In this case, it was a little boy who cried. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so uh, this is astonishing to them. It shocks them. Twice, the Bible says in the same passage. Remember, the Bible writes very tersely. There's not a lot of adjectives. We are not given a lot of emotional pictures. And when we are given, it is important. You should pause and say, this is rare. What's going on here? This is rare. Twice in the same passage, they are greatly astonished. What's this business? I thought you liked rich people. And uh, Jesus does two things. On one hand, he gives them insight into the deceptive nature of riches. And on the other hand, he reminds them that with God, all things are possible. So to talk about the history of this, uh, uh, many times I've heard preachers talk about how when Jesus says it's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of the needle, I've heard preachers for years uh, say that that was uh, there was a security gate in Jerusalem, and uh, it was mainly made for dismounted uh, security personnel, and they would come in and out of it. They wouldn't bring camels or beasts of burden through it. And so when Jesus says the eye of the needle, he's talking about that gate. Well, I, I went along with that for years, but there's this problem. There's absolutely no historical record um, around Jerusalem of any gate called the eye of the needle. I, I know it makes a great preaching illustration, but you know, it just, there's no history for it. So let's say maybe, who knows? I don't know. There's just no evidence for that. Um, however, there is a very famous saying saying in the region that was first, um, if you look at, uh, I think it's uh, etymology, it was a history of words. There's a famous, famous saying that's in a lot of writings at that time uh, that probably was a popular saying uh, that actually was uh, in Persia. It was, if we understand correctly, where it or- originated. And that was whenever something was hard, they would say one to another, easier for an elephant to go through an eye of a needle. Well, now, if you look at the writings and the histories around there, you will see uh, in the Jewish words, language, lingo, they substitute elephant for camel. And so if that is right, and again, we don't know, um, if that's the right take on it, then there, Jesus is saying it's very, very hard for someone who is trusting in riches, he does make that clarification, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So, uh, two things. Number one, money teaches us all the wrong things about life and makes it difficult for us to understand a world beyond this world. You guys with me? That's number one. Number two, with God, all things are possible. Okay, let's go back. Number one, money tends to teach us all the wrong lessons about life deceives us and makes it difficult for us to see a world beyond this world, a truth beyond our truth, hope beyond this life. It teaches us all the wrong lessons. But number two, with God, all things are possible. So uh, what are some of the uh, deceptions that money money places upon us and invites us. It invites us to misunderstand. Um, the, the, the first one is 
There's a fascination with money because you perceive it primarily as power or the extension of your wishes, wants, fantasies, desires. And so you are fascinated by it because it is the extension of yourself. It is the celebration of you. This is the Lucifer problem where the individual is exalted and tries to celebrate themselves rather than God. Money can have that effect on us and make us think happiness is in more of us. However, being honest, there is a really, really, really poor track record in the human story of money making people excessively happy. (laughs) Uh, It usually causes as many problems as it solves. I'm sad that that's the case. I'm not super excited about it, but it is true. Do you know most lottery winners die broke? Isn't that astonishing? Most lottery winners die broke. Uh, It's not just that, but for many years, now I think the league is doing something about it. Most, for many years, most professional athletes who had made millions of dollars would end up essentially with nothing or nothing compared to what they should have had. If money made you happy, there would be a whole lot less addiction among the wealthy and problems among the wealthy than there is. Money can be like a black hole to the spiritual side of our nature. And money can absorb the time, the energy that we should have been offering in godly work and godly worship, and instead we turn it to the celebration of our own wishes, desires, and wants. Money without self-discipline and self-knowledge is a killer. And so, secondly, money deceives us into removing our sense and feeling of dependency upon God. There is a tendency when we have enough money for us to follow the path of the rich fool and celebrate our blessing and say, soul, you have more than you've ever needed. Let's build more and bigger barns. And heaven says, thou fool, this night your soul is. In other words, you're rich in a commodity that will help you little. Let's say you're the biggest corn farmer in America. What's the one thing you don't need? Corn. You need to trade it. You need to put it into something else you need. You have a excess corn problem. You see, money is an excess carnal problem. And you cannot be rich in the things of God through a celebration of the things of this life and this flesh. And so money deceives us and woos us. Thirdly, uh, money tempts us to trust in this world and what this world can do for us. Money tempts us to trust in this world and in this life. Number four, the possession of money tempts us to a life of indulgence, not a life of sacrifice. And the problem with that is two generations, not one. Uh, How how shall I say this? Uh, Some of the most important lessons that we give to the next generation is how we choose to live 
how we, that how we choose to spend our time, how we choose to spend our money. That's lessons that are taught. But when the lesson that is shared is a lesson of primary self-indulgence and no meaning beyond yourself, it doesn't just damage you and kill your current success in the spiritual realm. It damages your children who are learning more from what you do than they ever will from what you say. Boy, I'm just being all kind of positive here tonight, aren't I? All right, so almost done. Uh, It is, uh, give me three minutes and I'll pretend to be done. Uh, So the temptation of uh, wealth is that it takes attention that should be on heavenly things and puts it on carnal things. It's the deceitful promise that it can do for us only what the spiritual contentment can do for us. And there is a literal ton of scriptures on every one of these. I'm just skipping scripture after scripture after scripture that's in my notes because there's so much on this. Number three, there is a foolishness, of in, uh, a foolish pride that comes in riches, where individuals make a fool of themselves because they think they deserve it or are worthy of it because of their wealth. And number four, uh, I want to say this, and I'll quit on this. I've got more, uh, but let's quit on this one. Um, uh, Trusting in this life, believing the lies of wealth makes you spiritually hard and calloused. Um, uh, it, it in some ways has this coarsening effect upon your soul. And some of the most uh, hard-edged people in the world are people who are continually, they continually live in this capitalistic battlefield where they're fighting and calculating and calculating and fighting and fighting and calculating and calculating and fighting and and they get so harsh just to the plight of common people. So all of these things work against us knowing God. However, that's all number one. That's all the deceitfulness of riches. I don't want to end on number one. I want to end on number two. With God, all things are possible. You know why that's important? You're not going to like when I say this, but, oh, well, you're all rich. Just because you're not rich by OECD standards or the wealthy world standards, the richest countries in the world, just because you're not in the 1% of America doesn't mean you're not in the 1% of the world. So I want to say that again. I want you to think about it. Just because you're not in the 1% of America doesn't mean you're not a one percenter in the world. You are already rich. Elbow your neighbor. Poke them, whatever works for you. Slap them, that works too. Tell them, you're already rich. You're already rich. So, all right. Refocus real quick. Don't make me threaten to go another 10 minutes. Um, All of the uh, dangers that are in money are available to the American way of life. Is that fair? Tendency 
to be arrogated, the tendency to to arrogance and self-importance, the tendency to trust in the things of this world, the tendency to celebrate ourselves rather than humble ourselves, the the tendency to let our circumstances allow us to make real real, uh, jerks of ourselves, the hardening and coarsening of competition. It's all here. And it's not just for the, you know, people deep into six figures. It's for all Americans. And we all of us, if we're not careful, can be beset with the folly and the foolishness of money. Or we can get our money organized. And like every other area of our life, we organize it in this way. God first. Everything else second. The number one way to organize that element of your life that can deceive you, distract you, destroy you. Get it right. Get it organized. God first. Then me. Then my wants. Then my wishes. So, you guys survive? Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, I pray for all of us. I pray that you would help us not be caught up in the deceitfulness of a a materialistic society. Lord, I pray you would help all of us to prioritize these these things in our life that they're, they're necessary, they're important, but Lord, they are not where joy is sourced. They are not where happiness is found. Help us today, I pray, as individuals. Help us today as a church, God, to handle these things carefully and to organize our hearts by putting you first and establishing the safeguards that are biblical safeguards against the temptation of riches. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Would you praise the Lord one more time before you're dismissed? Hallelujah. Amen. 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 That said, this is what I want for you, and this is what I think the will of the Lord is for you. When your heart is right, God can bless you. So when I pray the Lord to bless you, if your heart is right, then the door is open for blessing. If not, the very blessing someone prayed upon you has become a curse. So no curses, all blessings. Somebody say in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for worshiping with us tonight. Have a great week. And we will see you later. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, Come join us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road at the corner of Shamrock Drive. Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. And Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Online, find us at firstchurchclt.com or like us on Facebook or Twitter. We hope to see you soon. Come worship with us.